Have you ever received news that kind of seemed to knock the very wind out of you? News that was so heavy, so devastating that in the moment you really couldn't process it. You needed time to just sit down and make sense or try to make sense of how you should respond and how you should react to the news that you just received. In our text this morning, we'll see someone receive this kind of news and prayerfully will draw some encouragement from how he responded to that news. Taking a brief break this morning from our time in 1 Corinthians, as you know, uh, has been a time of prayer and, and fasting for us here at City Light. Uh, during four weeks of prayer, all centered around uh, this idea of revival, asking God to revive us, our homes, our hearts, our city, our church. Four weeks of prayer with each week having its own things centered around each, each, each centered around revival. Excuse me, it's a new tray morning. Four weeks. Week one is revival of our hearts. Week two, revival of our families and our church. Week three, revival of our city. And week four, revival in our world. So four weeks with each week having its own uh, uh, specific prayer focus, each day having its own specific prayer focus. Today that prayer focus is suffering. So today I want to talk to us about prayer and suffering, or really it'll end up being praise and suffering. Part of this will be for those who may be currently or will one day experience suffering, but part of this is, is more from an intercessory standpoint because many of us, like the main character in our text, may not ever experience this kind of suffering. But we'll be connected to it because somebody around us, somebody close to us, will be suffering. Look with me if you have your Bibles at Nehemiah chapter 1. Hear the words of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hikaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of the brothers, one of my brothers, came to me, or came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Right off we see for all intents and purposes that Nehemiah is disconnected from this suffering. He's in Susa at the king's winter palace, but he has genuine interest on how the people of God are doing back in Jerusalem. And so he asked his brother, how are the Jews who escaped and survived the exile? How is Jerusalem? And having asked the people, excuse me, and having asked about the people, Nehemiah took the time to listen to the report. And how does he respond? How does Nehemiah respond to the news concerning Jerusalem and the Jews and the exile? Verse 4 tells us, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. 
And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When Nehemiah heard this news, he sat down. This was one of those moments where you aren't quite ready to hear the news that you hear. One of those moments that seem to take your breath. So he sat down. He didn't blow past the moment like some of us can do all too often. Our customary response when we hear bad news, man, wow, we're really shocked to hear it. But our response too often is, we'll be praying for you, man. We don't take the time to really stop and feel the weight of what we just heard. Scripture tells us then after hearing the news and having sitting down that Nehemiah wept. And giving proper time and posture to feel the weight of the news that he just received, Nehemiah was moved to the point of weeping. When was the last time you heard news that made you weep? When was the last time that you heard news from someone else that made you weep over someone else's situation. After taking a moment to feel the weight of the news and having had an emotional response to the news, Nehemiah prayed. Look with me at verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He says, God of the heavens. Immediately he lifts his gaze. He lifts his view. In the face of great suffering, it can be difficult to see much beyond what you're actually going through. It's easy to get locked in during hard times. It's easy to get tunnel vision and to only see your suffering. And if nothing else is coming in, if you're at that point, nothing else is coming in, then nothing else is coming out. If all I see is my suffering, then suffering becomes my testimony. Scripture says that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. But if my suffering is my testimony, my suffering will become my companion. There is no overcoming for me. There's just suffering. It'll be all I know, and so I would have no reason to expect or to hope for or to long for anything different. It is possible to get comfortable, for lack of a better word, in misery and suffering. It is possible to deal with pain and suffering in adverse circumstances for so long that these things become the norm. They become the rule rather than the exception. Psychologist Jennifer Crawl says this, people tend to find comfort in what they are familiar with. If what we're familiar with is pain and suffering and depression, then pain and suffering and depression, excuse me, is where we will seek comfort. But there is no comfort in pain and suffering and depression. So Nehemiah cries out to the God of the heavens. He begins his prayer with praise. And purposeful praise reminds us that God is greater than our circumstances. And if there's any time that we need that reminder, it's when we're in the middle of suffering. So it's important, family, that we learn to praise God. And this is where we'll spend most of our attention as we look at the prayer of Nehemiah. 
But we don't just see this idea of praise and suffering uh, 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 here in Nehemiah. We see it modeled in other places of Scripture. Job is called a, a, a man, blame, excuse me, Job is called blameless and upright, a man who feared God and turned away from evil. Evil. Can somebody get me some paper towel or something right quick? It's hard to speak in these things. You know, I want to gross everybody out by just taking them out in front of you. Y'all seen somebody take dentures out? It's fun, right? I don't want to do that to y'all this morning. I should have did it before I came up here. I'm sorry. That works, Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you, bro. Amen. Three more months, we'll be done. Amen. Amen. So Job is called blameless and upright, a man who feared God and turned away from evil, yet Job experienced suffering. Now, I think it's important to note here that suffering doesn't mean that God is displeased with you. Amen. I want us to hear that. For those of us who are suffering and for those of us who are looking to care for those who are suffering, to come alongside them. We need to understand that suffering does not mean that God is displeased with you. We don't want to be like those uh, uh, in John chapter 9 regarding the man who was born blind, uh, asking who sinned that this man would be born this way. And we don't want to be like Job's friends sitting around accusing people of sin. Suffering doesn't mean that God is displeased with you. While most of us are probably familiar with the testimony of Job, let's take a quick look at how his story begins. Job chapter 1, look with me there. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of them on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning uh, and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. According to the scripture, this man was blameless, upright. He feared the Lord and avoided evil. He had family, he had wealth, he was conscious of not only his walk with the Lord, but also that of his children. And just in case one of them had sinned in their feasting, as the head of the house, the priest of the home, Job made sacrifices to the Lord on their behalf. And scripture tells us he did this continually. Job is doing well in his life. He has servants, he has oxen, he has livestock, he has uh, uh, children. So what happens? How does Job go from it is well to having seemingly all proverbial hell breaking loose in his life? Look with me at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. 
And Satan also came among them. The Lord said, Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? God's testimony of Job is that there is none like him on the earth. Does this sound like a man with whom God is displeased? And yet it is God's recommendation that leads to Job's suffering. We won't go too deep in the book, but what follows in chapter one has to be listed among one of the worst days ever that any one person has ever experienced. Job had more loss in one day than most of us will experience in our lifetime. One by one, servants came with the testimony of loss, loss of his livestock, loss of his servants, even the loss of his children. Job had a really bad day. But how does he respond? How does Job respond to this really bad day, having experienced so much loss, so much suffering all in the same day? Verse 20 says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Job, we know that he had some setbacks before fully recovering or finally recovering. But what I want us to focus on is the fact that he, his immediate response was not to turn inward. That's what we do a lot of times when we suffer. We turn inward. But he didn't get locked in on his suffering, but rather he looks toward his Savior. He didn't say, woe is me or why me? He said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job worshiped and prayed, praised and looked towards heaven. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? All my help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. It's important, family, that we learn how to praise. We see again this idea of praise and suffering in Psalms 22. It's a psalm of David uh, referred to as a messianic psalm because it points to Christ. Look with me if you have your Bibles or phones. Psalms 22 verses 1 through 3. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We hear these words from Jesus on the cross, but could David have possibly felt this way. In an article on this text, W. Robert Godfrey shares this. Here is the most intense suffering God's servant can know. Not just that enemies surround him. We know God, not God, David had his run in with enemies. And that his body is in dreadful pain but that he feels that God does not hear him and does not care about his suffering. Could David have felt this way? Could have felt this way. Could Israel have felt this way? 
Verse 5 of Psalm 22 says, They that trust in you will never be put to shame. Yet these are the exact words we hear in Nehemiah as Hanani gives report concerning Jerusalem. If we look back at Nehemiah in verse uh, uh, 3, they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates burned by fire. Israel suffered years upon years of hardship. They dealt with war and with exile and with slavery. And even in being released to go back to the, uh, the land that God had promised to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land of promise is now a land of problems. Hanani testifies of the people of God that they are in great trouble and shame. Sometimes we can feel as if we're surrounded by our suffering. We can feel as if there's no way out and no escape from the pain. And when pain persists beyond our prayers, having asked God to heal, we can absolutely feel as if we've been abandoned by God, forgotten by God. And it is for these times, family, that the sacrifice of praise is needed. Psalm 22 and 3 again says, "You Yet you are holy, enthroned by the praises, enthroned in the praises of Israel. The King James says he inhabits the praises of his people. Praise invites God into our suffering. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 2 Corinthians 3 and 17, not that we are instantly freed from our circumstances, but praise lifts us up out of our circumstances, above our circumstances, if only but for a moment. And it gives us a view of those circumstances in the light of our God. Think of the Olympic swimmer as he comes up to breathe from the water. Finishing the race is only possible because of the moments of air, the moments of life-giving air that he or she takes in as they come up. As we come up from the problems to praise visions of our great and awesome God, as Nehemiah phrases it, this God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments are the life-giving moments of air needed to survive our suffering. And note, note where these people are. Nehemiah has heard that God's people, his people are in great trouble and shame. He sits, he weeps, and he begins to pray. He praises, he gives praises to God. Do you think this was an emotional moment for him? Job has just lost his children, his servants, his livestock, and he cries out, blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you think this was an emotional moment for him? My family has been touched by suffering, following the birth of our son, and my wife dealt with great pain for several months. I can absolutely tell you it's, it's, it's an emotional time. Praising these moments are not likely to be calm and reserved. Not that they can't be. God gives us the peace that passes all understanding, but they are not usually calm and reserved moments. These are moments, uh, uh, or rather these moments are likely, more likely to be moments of exclamation and exhortation. Confession of what we need God most to be for us in these moments. 
healer, deliverer, comforter. For Nehemiah, he sees the struggles of God's people here on earth, and so he prays God of heaven. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is very fitting that Nehemiah begins his prayer in this way. In verse 6 of our text, back in Nehemiah, he continues praying and says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. He starts with a big picture of a great God, and what we see next is a natural result of sinful man in the presence of a big and awesome and holy God. The, verse, the end of verse 6 says, Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We acted very, very corruptly against you and have not kept the commands, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. We see a similar reaction in Isaiah 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now remember our first thought concerning suffering. A suffering doesn't mean that God is displeased with you. Just because you're suffering or someone close to you is suffering doesn't mean that their suffering is the result of sin. But we know that much of the sickness and, excuse me, sickness and death and brokenness that we see in the world is the result of sin. Maybe not yours, but certainly that of Adam's. However, confession of sin is a product of communion with God. And so Nehemiah, having been fasting and praying day and night, is compelled by the very presence of God to confess sin. And not only his, but the sins of the people of Israel and the sin of his father's house, his relatives. And having confessed sin, Nehemiah calls God to remember. Verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. Nehemiah has already acknowledged the sins of his people. In doing so, he is also acknowledging that God is a God of his word. Lord, you said if we are unfaithful that you would scatter us. The people are scattered, have been scattered, which is why Jerusalem is in the condition that it's in. Verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather you and bring them, excuse me, gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah has already declared that God is a God of his word. You said you'd scatter us and we are scattered, but Lord, you also said if we return that you would gather us. And Lord, we are returning. 
Not just to a physical place, not, to, not just to Jerusalem, but to a place of fellowship. We are returning to fasting and prayer and praise and communion. We desperately need you to gather us. We need you to lean into the suffering of your people. Back in Psalm twenty-two, eleven, he says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. We should always desire to be near God and for God to be near to us, but even more so in times of suffering, it is absolutely necessary to have him near. Presence matters. God's presence in our life matters. But your presence does as well. We have family and friends, those who are close to us, who are suffering. They need your presence. They need you to be present. Whether it's a call or a text, go show your face. Let them know that they aren't going through alone. Amen. Be present. Last verse, verse 11. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cut bare to the king. Nehemiah has put his hands together in prayer, and now he prepares to put his hands to work. He's asked for God's presence. He's asked that God remember his promise. He is now asking for God's provision. One of our values here at City Light Church is emptying empowerment. It's the idea of emptying ourselves of any power that we might have so that others can be empowered. It's certainly applicable during times when those around us are suffering. In practice, what that looks like is us examining our pockets, our privilege, and our positions and saying, God, use us, asking God to use us to serve those around us. Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. That means he's in a position that could possibly get him access to resources that would help him serve Israel in their suffering. What do you have access to? I know oftentimes we look at ourselves and we see ourselves and our resources as inadequate. We don't have, we feel as if we don't have anything to give. But do a real examination. What privilege, what position, what power, what could you be leveraging for the benefit of someone who is hurting around you? In closing, here's a challenge for us as we look to serve in this way. Taking our playbook from Nehemiah and keeping with this value of emptying empowerment, how do we sacrifice our time, talent, and treasure to come alongside those who are suffering around us? Number one, we see from Nehemiah that he cared. He cared enough to genuinely ask someone how they were doing. Ask his brother, how were the exiles doing? We need to care to genuinely ask those around us how they're doing. Not blow past the moment. Care enough to ask the question and then give them space to share or to vent. Should they feel the need to express whatever burden they might be carrying? Care enough to listen. I know I found myself too often having conversations with people with my phone in my hand. 
right? Put the phone away. Give them your undivided attention. They need to know they're not in this alone. Give them that moment. Number two, be compassionate enough to genuinely sympathize with the pain of others. When Nehemiah first heard the news, Scripture tells us that he sat down. Take the time to sit with the bad news and process what others might be feeling and dealing with in that moment. We live such busy lives just running from appointment to appointment. I know I do. From task to task. It's easy to move too quickly from talking to someone about their issues to our next task. Take the time to be touched by what you just heard. Just heard. Lastly, commission. Care and compassion to, should compel us to be commissioned. After having his prayer and, and, and after praising God and praying, the last thing that Nehemiah did was say, hey, Lord, I'm going to the king. I need to help in some way. Take stock of any and all resources that you may have to see in what tangible way that you can lean in and be of service. Again, I know many of us look and we, we say, Lord, we really don't have anything, but you never know how big an impact God can use this great and awesome God that Nehemiah prayed to, how he can take our little and make much of it for his glory and for the good of the people that we're looking to serve. Amen. Amen. May God help us to labor in this way. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you.